I invite you this morning to join me in Peter's second letter. Second Peter, chapter 2. A moment we'll read the first three verses. We'll take a moment to again thank Paul Mendenhall for stepping in and helping with music as Nathan's been taking some vacation time. Appreciate his help here. Just as well to let you know, last past Sunday night I did kind of a survey of, uh, or an assessment, if you will, of the state of the Southern Baptist Convention. And it went beyond an hour, my apologies, but did not offer you an opportunity for questions. So this coming Sunday night, a week from tonight, I'm going to give you a chance to ask questions if you'd like concerning the SBC and things that have been going on. If you're interested in that, that's one week from tonight. Second Peter, second chapter, verses 1, 2, and 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This is the word of our God. Pray. And now, Father, we ask for the work of your Spirit as we consider what you teach us this day. Lord, make us alert, and in these moments, O oh Lord, Grant to us the grace we need to stand firm in the truth. For these things we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Out of curiosity, I'd looked, and the last time that I have record of preaching this text was the 2nd of April in 2000. And the only reason that's of much significance is that's the very same day we had an afternoon of a groundbreaking ceremony approximately here, more or less. Uh, some of you, well, I'm curious, now I've got to know. How many of you were present for that groundbreaking? Yeah, not many of us. That's been a little while ago. This chapter is disturbing, especially in light of our current cultural environs. While I've noticed the diminishing and even outright denial of truth and falsehood, I've also noticed we are really prone to use very strong words to describe those with whom we disagree. Fascists. Communists, neo-fascists, left-wing nut, right-wing nut, etc., etc. Now, such language permeates social media of ostensible Christians as well. When describing other 
professing believers. Woke. Racist. Nationalist. Socialist. And more and more often, heretic. Now I'll point out, the word heresy actually appears here. Whenever the ESV translates in verse 1, secretly bring in destructive heresies, the Greek word is actually the word heresy. It's where it comes from. Now, let's acknowledge it's going to be some decades later before it comes to have the formal meaning that we tend to think of, born out of controversy, false teaching, and then responses in the truth over issues of the incarnation, issues of the Trinity, and so on. But it does appear here. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, of all the chapters which are to be found in the entire Bible, this second chapter of the second epistle of Peter is among the most terrible for threatening, for warning, for the idea of doom and disaster and destruction. There is nowhere in Holy Writ itself anything which surpasses this particular chapter. See, my friends, Peter is longing that we be established. In fact, that's some of the language that he uses in that first chapter. He wants us to make our calling, verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And in the first chapter, it's primarily positive statements. Here's how you go about doing this. Here's what you have. Everything you need for life and godliness has already been given to you. In the second chapter, he's not changed his target. His target is still that you be established, settled in who you are. But with that comes warning. One brother calls it pure, terrifying description of what will happen to those who fall prey to false teachers in the church. Now let's acknowledge this sets up something of a tension for us. And I think it's actually a, a two-part tension. The first one is how do we distinguish things for which we ought to have a live-and-let-live attitude What's the stuff you and I can disagree about, or we and other Christian groups can disagree about, and not label one another heretics? Maybe misguided, wrong, some error, but not leading people to destruction. That's that can be a little tough. And what I've noticed is the younger you are in the faith, the more likely you are to have a very big list at the top of everything that makes people a heretic. It does seem to be a big list. And then after you live a little while, and you learn a little more of the Scripture, and you grow a little bit, you realize, okay, my list is too big by half. And then a little later, you cut the thing in half again. 
Not that there aren't places for disagreement. We have, brethren, that we consider brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ with whom we have disagreements. Otherwise, there would be no purpose in having separate congregations, right? That's kind of built in. That's one aspect. But the other is this, and I think it's more critical. If we're not careful, we'll find ourselves preferring soul-condemning niceness over sound doctrine. We're, we're so worried that we're going to offend somebody that we won't take a stand. And there's the dynamic, there's the tension. You see, Peter's calling us here. He's announcing that false teaching is a constant threat to the church. False teaching is a constant threat to the church. So consider this first. We'll do it this way. How about the history of false teachers? Chapter three, 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people. Now, please note that when Peter writes this, he did not put in the numbers you have here. And I don't know about you, but I've never written a letter yet where I included chapter numbers. Now, I've occasionally said things. People wish there were chapter divisions and a break. But when Peter writes this, it's one continuous letter. So now pay attention. How does, the end, uh, how does he end chapter 1? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But, verse 1, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. You see, besides the encouragement that men spoke from God, there now comes the warning that there's such a thing historically as false prophets. The history of the Old Testament, the history of God's people, where the, when you start in Genesis and read to the end of the book, is filled with examples of people who claim to be speaking for God, but were really advancing their own ideas or their own programs. In fact, whenever the office of prophet is established under the Mosaic Covenant, one of the things that goes with it was warnings about false prophets. How do you determine when somebody who's speaking is actually speaking for God, and how do you know they're not speaking for the God of the covenant people of Israel? Well, there were three things. The first one was they didn't speak with divine authority. And you find this over and over again where the true prophets will, by the revelation of the Lord, say to them, the Lord says, I didn't send you. You don't speak for me. Secondly, their message almost always was good news. Not gospel good news, but soul-destroying good news. Promises of peace and security in contrast to warnings about judgment. And then thirdly, they were shown eventually to be worthy of condemnation. If you take time to read the Old Testament, you'll see how often false prophets were, were current and wickedly involved in the life of Israel. Now often they were in the favor of those in power. 
When you read the stories of Elijah and Elisha, you find out that the kings of Israel typically like to listen to their prophets better because their prophets always said, you'll always win the battle, you're doing just fine, everything's lovely, O king, live forever. And Elijah and Elisha come along and say, you wicked wretch. Israel's doomed for your idolatry. Well, that's a depressing message. You read in the book of Jeremiah, the prophets who loathed Jeremiah because they prophesied peace and safety. Whenever the Lord was saying, you're doomed, destruction is just around the corner. Now herein is the warning in light of the history. If you're willing to declare the truth, you're also likely going to be quite unpopular. The culture is not going to like you. The history of false teachers, which leads us next to what I'll call the habits of false teachers. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they'll exploit you with false words. Now, Peter calls these people that are coming false teachers, not false prophets. And he does that, I think, for a very specific reason. Peter, believe it or not was at least to some extent a cessationist. He is going to say that certain gifts are no longer necessary for the future of the church, specifically the issue of prophecy, because the text of Scripture is being written. The text of the New Testament is coming. You know, you sometimes hear people, oh, we really need a prophet today. No, we don't. We don't need prophets. We need teachers, we need shepherds, we need people who can understand and apply the text of Scripture, but not somebody getting new revelation from the Lord. Now, some say, well, why does he say there will be? Because I think what he's doing here is quoting from prior words from the apostles, even as far back as the ministry of Jesus, about the danger of false teachers. Jesus will say in Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Matthew 24, 24, false Christ, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible even the elect. Paul will warn about them. Acts chapter 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now let me point out, whenever there's this warning, and let me see if I can address at least somewhat the first tension we feel. When does it rise to the level of not merely seeking to correct, but actually to the point of danger? Now, at least a couple of these show up in the New Testament. One of the early arguments in the early church was about meat sacrificed to idols. 
Right? The question is, you got all these folks bringing down offerings to Artemis or Zeus or Mercury, he's filling the blank, whoever it was, and they'd bring their offerings. Well, they had far more than they could use up in burnt offerings, and it was even more than the acolytes that worked there at the temple could eat, and so they found a profitable side business. We'll sell the extra meat in the market, make a little money, we found a way to dispose of the meat. Okay? Think of it as kind of the surplus store of its own day, right? It's not damaged freight. It's just extra meat. Now, this brought a question. Can a Christian, in good conscience, eat meat that was earlier sacrificed to an idol? Now, for some of them who had come out of that idolatrous background, it bothered them. It upset their conscience. For others, they didn't care. Now let me give you the theology behind it. Paul makes this abundantly clear. An idol isn't anything. When people offer sacrifices to idols, they are in essence doing satanic worship. But there are no other gods but the one true God. And the meat, there's nothing wrong with it. However, if it bothers you, don't eat it. Further, if it bothers your brother or sister, don't serve it. And further, if you go to somebody's house and they didn't tell you where they got the meat for the meal, don't ask. This is the biblical don't ask, don't tell policy. Eat your steak. Shut your mouth. Now that was a place for a difference of opinion. There was also a question over whether certain foods were kosher or not. Now this was a, a big problem because you had Jews who had grown up orthodox and there were certain foods that were unclean and they didn't want to eat them even having come to faith in Christ. And yet Gentiles who had eaten all of that stuff and they didn't see where the problem was. Now, the Scripture makes this abundantly clear. Jesus makes it clear all food is clean. There's nothing wrong with whatever God provides. Now, it took a little while to get that through the dense head of even somebody like Simon Peter. Right? But here was another place. Don't cause somebody to stumble. Now, please understand, he wasn't saying that it's wrong for you to eat non-kosher food. He's saying if you brought your Jewish brother home and you know he's got a problem with it, don't serve bacon and lettuce and tomato sandwiches. Okay? Show some grace and kindness. Further, I think about this. I don't know about you, but I noticed something about the church at Corinth. Would it be fair to say the Corinthian church was a mess? Is that a fair assessment? You, know, you don't have to read too far in 1 Corinthians and go, oh my goodness. Right? But you notice that 
Paul doesn't call them heretics. And he doesn't declare they're not Christians. He seeks to correct the error. So yes, we have to be cautious here as we consider false teaching. But let's talk about their habits. And it shows up as three things. They were secretive, they were sensual, and they're greedy. Can I point out, ain't much changed when it comes to false teaching? Now, some say, well, it says they denied the Lord that bought them. So that means, obviously, they were Christians and they then became non-Christians. No, no, no. Peter is using phenomenological language. Now, there's a mouthful, okay? Let me explain it this way. He is treating them the way they want to be treated or what they claim to be. They claim to be redeemed. So Peter says, fine, you're redeemed. You're denying the Lord who ostensibly bought you by these false teachings. He is saying these false teachers who went in the Christian assembly, they'd all say they were Christians. They would affirm that they'd believed in Christ. Christ had died for them in order for them to have salvation. But you've noticed something about false teachers. They don't come up announcing, oh, by the way, I'm here to tell you something phony in the name of the Lord. False teachers don't function that way. It's rare that they're going to come out and say this clearly. Now, of course, there are exceptions to the rule. You have some that by their very outrageousness want to show you that they're teaching something different. But when they show up inside of the church, more times than I can count, I've both witnessed and heard of teachers, ostensibly Christian professors, who have forsaken the faith but have kept their apostasy secret. Just a few decades ago, it was not at all uncommon in our own SBC seminaries, at least a couple of them, that a professor would be expected to sign the confession of faith of that institution. So whether the Baptist faith and message, or in the case of Southern Seminary, the abstract of principles. And they would sign it knowing they did not agree with it. And here was their justification. Well, we're trying to change it. And as long as we're seeking to change it, we can in good conscience sign it. Wow. You talk about moral shenanigans here. Ethical conundrum. You see, we even had one professor at one time. He not only denied total depravity and God's sovereign election, Christ's particular redemption, the nature of the grace of God, he also denied perseverance of the saints. And even wrote publicly about it. And he was a professor in good standing at one of our seminaries. And his argument was he was trying to drive out the last vestiges of error from Baptist churches. Hmm. Got a better idea. Go teach someplace where you're in agreement. Now, let me point out in one case in particular, when Dr. Moeller went to Southern Seminary, and it's almost 30 years ago now, hard for me to fathom this. Early 1993, he brought the convocation address entitled 
Don't just stand there, do something. In which he said, from this point forward, we will be a confessional institution. You will affirm exactly what is written in the abstract of principles or you will not teach. The consequence of that was in the next few years, 98 out of 100 professors departed from that seminary. You see, my friends, there's something secretive in false teaching. Now, why did they leave? 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. Then it might become plain that they're not all of us. Or the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, I will declare to them, well, Lord, I did this, 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 and this. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Notice, he did not say, I once knew you and then forgot you, or I once knew you and we don't know each other anymore. I never knew you. My friend, there's a danger here. Giving the impression you're redeemed when you're not real. See, it's not just secretive, it's sensual. And I, I'll point this out in brief, but far more often than anybody wants to admit, bad doctrine is connected to bad living. I want the doctrine to change so I can justify the way I live. I want my lifestyle to determine what my doctrine is, not the other way around. Over and over and over again, this is seen to be true. Further, it's not only... Uh, that we deal with doctrinal apostasy or moral apostasy. Further, there is greed. This is seen regularly as well. Consider virtually any aspect of the current day word of faith movement. It is inevitably and constantly about making money, how to get wealthy. And you notice the way you get wealthy, according to the Word of Faith movement, is the same stuff they used to try to get me into back in my college days of a pyramid scheme. Come and sell our product, and if you sell the product, then I'll make money and you'll make money. And oh, by the way, if you get others and recruit them, what they make will come to you and what they make will come to me, and everybody gets rich, except the problem with the pyramid scheme at some point is you run out of base. And guess who's still got money? It ain't you. Much of false doctrine is nothing more than a religious pyramid scheme. When you have somebody say, well, I'm going to tell you something I believe, but keep it on the down low. What? My brothers and sisters, if you've learned anything at Boulevard at all, you've learned we don't hide anything. You want to know what we believe? We'll tell you. What if they don't like it? Better to know now. Right? You mean you believe this? Yep. Fill in the blank. It's in our confession. You want to know? False teachers have habits. Not only is there a history and habits, there's a heritage. And this is the consequences. It's destructive. It leads to blasphemy of the truth and exploitation. Now I'll do this in brief. But he calls them destructive heresies. Here's a way to measure the danger of a doctrine. If it's a false doctrine, 
does it bring destruction? That is, does it destroy people? So anything, any doctrine that leads you away from Jesus Christ and the gospel is heretical. It is destructive. It is dangerous. Now there's extensions of that. You start causing people to doubt the veracity of the Word of God, that's a beginning point over and over and over again. You have errors regarding the Trinity, dangerous. The Incarnation, dangerous. The nature of sin, dangerous. What it means to be human, extraordinarily dangerous. And we see this today. Brothers and sisters, if you haven't caught on yet, we are instituting in our culture, we are normalizing things that are ultimately destroying people. Their lives are train wrecks. And they're about to become worse. Errors regarding the gospel, these of a certainty lead to destruction. It leads to blasphemy of the truth. You see, when sensuality and greed are observed by unbelievers, they start reaching conclusions about the nature of all Christianity and Christians. And it leads to blasphemy of the truth. My friend, the Lord does not smile upon that. I want to say to many of those in the prosperity movement what our Puritan brethren once said, the Lord often curses His enemies with wealth. So they never repent. They never believe. They die blinded by wealth. And exploitation, He just bluntly says, they will exploit you, verse 3. Their sensuality and their greed lead them to be predators. My friend, if your doctrinal understanding leads you to secretiveness, to sensuality, to greed, then the next thing that happens is it leads you to destructive work in people's lives, to blasphemy of the truth, and exploitation. So we've considered the history, the habits, the heritage. Finally, consider this. The inheritance for false teachers. The end of that third verse. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Earlier in the first verse, they said, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. I believe what Peter is saying here is when the destruction comes, it's absolutely unstoppable. They are condemned by the Lord Himself. They are destroyed, sent into perdition by the Lord Himself. It may appear to be slow in coming, but it's not idle, nor is it a sleep. The Lord takes seriously what you say you believe. We live in an era in which we're not sure what to do with things about faith and belief. First of all, you've noticed that there are appropriate things according to our culture to believe to be true, even if they're not. Right? Basic biology. 
There's such a thing as male and female. This is not something assigned at birth. It is something hardwired into your DNA. But we're going to say, no, that's not true. Men can give birth. No, they can't. False on its face. My friend, if you're struggling, I, I want to be careful here. If you're struggling over these issues, may I hold out to you that in the midst of all this madness, there is sanity. And the sanity is to hear what the Lord says to you. And the Lord says to you, you're a sinner in the sight of God. And God, yes, is angry. You do not want to meet Him in your current state. But if you will repent and believe, trust in what Christ has done, you will be saved. And that salvation is not merely of your soul. In this case, it will also be your sanity. So when I hear people make fun of, oh, you people believe in a book that's 2,000 years old. Yep. Sure do. Well, you ought to get with it. Son, I've seen what getting with it leads to. What's your offering? At nothing of interest to me. I see destruction. I see condemnation. Now, come here to a transition as we enter into the Lord's table. I know you're sitting there, oh no. We've gone from judgment and false teachers and destruction. How in the world will I ever make a turn now to talk about the Lord's Supper and it'll be okay? My friend, what we celebrate today is what makes it okay for us who believe. And more than it makes it okay, Gives us life. See, my friend, when I speak to the sins of this age, please understand, I'm not saying to you that your biggest need is to change your sin. You can't. Your biggest need is not moral reform. Your biggest need is you're estranged from God. And God has made a way back. And it's not what you pick. It's what He designs. So I don't come here as a negotiator. I come as a herald. Here's my declaration. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if you turn to him, you find life. Christian, isn't this the joy as we come here? Not that we are worthy, but he is. I don't get in on my righteousness. There's not a Christian here today that is going to earn their place in heaven. Not even a little bit. We get in because of Him. Period. We are justified by His dying. We are justified by His living. We are justified in Him as we trust in faith. 
this past Wednesday and going through parables. The parable we considered was the parable of the moneylender who had somebody that owed him 500 denarii, that is about a year and a half's wages, and somebody that owed him 50 denarii, about a month and a half's wages. And neither of them could pay. And he forgave them both. And you remember how this was set up? Jesus has gone to have a dinner at Simon's house, a Pharisee, and while he's there, reclined at the table, this notorious woman comes in, and she was a sinner, likely a reference to being a prostitute. And she sees that Jesus' feet haven't been washed, he's not been anointed, she's brought this very expensive perfume, and she begins to weep. And I, folks, it's a scene, okay? I mean, her nose is running, the tears are flowing, and she's getting his feet wet, and she kneels down and she takes her hair and is wiping his feet and anointing his feet with this extraordinarily expensive perfume. And I mean, here she is, sobbing, nose running, hair matted and muddy, and the smell of perfume, and she's just a train wreck. And Simon, he doesn't think anybody's listening, certainly not that Jesus could hear him. He thinks to himself, if he were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman's touching him. So he's writing Jesus off. <laughs> and I love this. Luke even says it this way. Jesus answered him. Simon hadn't said anything. He just thought it. Jesus answered him. And then he tells the parable. You remember the question? Who do you think is going to love the money lender more? Of course, Simon sees where this is going. Well, I suppose the one that owes the most money. <laughs> you think? I, that's an alternate reading I made up. Jesus didn't say that, but I think it could be there somewhere. Her sins, which are many, forgiven. I think he'd already forgiven her. I think that had already happened. I think this was her coming in a response of joy. And here's what Jesus says to her. And I think these are the words my Christian brother and sister hear these words today. He looks at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> Christian, did you hear that? If you're his, your sins are forgiven. can't be that easy. Yeah, it is. It's what he's done. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Faith in him. Remember his last three words to her? Go in peace. Christian, we are at that point now. We're going to take the Lord's table together. You don't have to be a member of Boulevard. Take the Lord's Supper with us. We're not checking IDs nor credentials. I will say this, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, a baptized believer, let this go by. It's not for you. But oh, my friend, if you're his, this is for you. And I invite you to the table. Examine yourself, yes. But here's what the examination will likely yield. You've done messed up this week. In fact, you've likely messed up Today, in heart, a mind, 
some fashion. He invites you to the table. Come and eat. Christian, your sins are forgiven. Faith has saved you. So as we take the Lord's Supper today, let's go in peace. Yes, there's false teachers, and we ought to be aware, and we ought to call it out bluntly, clearly, without apology. But oh, my friend, as we're declaring bad news, let's not lose sight of good news. Today as we take the Lord's table, good news. Our Father, Father,